I have no doubt in my mind that you have, every one of us have heard at some point in our lives, I don't care how long we've lived, we've all heard the statement, sometimes the truth hurts, right? Certainly, I'm not the only one. Yes, the truth hurts. Now, sometimes people say that to us because they are indeed telling us the truth and that truth confronts us. Sometimes people are telling us that because they think they're telling us the truth, but in reality, they're just trying to justify uh, cutting words. Well, this morning, uh, looking at the Gospel of John chapter 8, when Jesus says, the truth will set you free, he is confronting the audience then, he's confronting us now with himself. He is the truth that sets us free. Sometimes that truth, that truth of Jesus, does indeed hurt. Sometimes the truth of Jesus is offensive to us. Sometimes the truth of Jesus steps on our toes, kicks us in the shins. And sometimes that's exactly what we need, maybe even all the time. Author Dorothy Sayers once said, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. Because the truth hurts. Because the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and risen For the sins of many, including you and me, that hurts. And as we are confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the underlying reality that God is sovereign, that God created, that God exists, that God will judge, as we are confronted with those realities, we are offended. Offended because it turns our world upside down. Offended because our idols are challenged. Now, we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 17. As Doug read for us this morning, we're starting very specifically at verse uh, verse 16 in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, are in Greece. They begin chapter 17 in Thessalonica, and the gospel finds success as they proclaim Jesus to be the Christ. But there in Thessalonica, they find themselves in trouble with Jewish leaders and a mob of some wicked Greek men. And so Paul and Silas or Timothy, are, they're called these men who have turned the world upside down. Why? Because they've done anything other than preach the gospel? No. Only because they've been arguing with, explaining with, reasoning with the Jewish synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. And they have turned the world upside down because in the proclamation of the gospel, we are challenged. I really like this phrase that that these men have turned the world upside down because I think it really does depict what happens when the gospel of Jesus confronts us. The gospel turns our world upside down. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, the reality of Jesus crucified and risen rocks our world to the core. It challenges and uproots our idols. But you see, in turning our world upside down, the gospel sets us free by turning us right side up. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. Paul was run out of Philippi. He was run out of Thessalonica. He was run out of Berea. And so by verse 16, there's a pattern there. So by verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. 
I'm going to tell you a little bit about the city of Athens, not to bore you with historic detail, but because it's important. Athens was a city uh, in the ancient Greek empire, or the ancient Greek period. Athens was the preeminent and prominent city of all of Greece. And yes, there were times and periods in which other cities would surpass Athens, but Athens would almost always reclaim its position. It had a glorious and illustrious path. It was past. It was it was connected to higher learning, to education. And while Athens was a bit on the decline during the Roman period of Paul's day, it was coasting on in its reputation. It was still an important place for culture, for art, and for learning. But the culture of the city itself was a weird mixture of this uh, sophisticated philosophy coupled with superstitious idolatry. As Paul will remark, the Athenians were a religious people, and the city itself was full of idols, temples, shrines, statues, and altars. Pagan idol worship was such a huge part of the life of Athens and its citizens that a Roman author once quipped that it was easier to find a god than a man in the city. Luke tells us, right, so Paul is there in Athens waiting for, Paul, uh, for Silas and Timothy to join him. And so he goes on a sightseeing adventure. He goes and he checks out the sights. And Luke tells us while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Provoked is a really interesting word. He was provoked by the idols. We know what that means. He was irritated. He was stirred up. He was worked up. He was ticked off. He was distressed by the presence of all these idols, by all of this idolatry, by the worship of these idols, which he witnessed. It's an interesting thing, I think. Paul's reaction to the presence of these idols in the city of Athens is the same reaction of God in the Old Testament. God was, and he still is, by the way, uh, irritated, Stirred up, worked up, distressed, and ticked off at the presence of idols and the worship given to them. Why? Well, at its core, idolatry is treating something of creation as God. At its core, idolatry is giving that something of creation the honor and glory that rightfully belongs only to the Creator, to God. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, idolatry is the foolish exchange of the glory of God for images of man, birds, animals, or any other such thing. Idolatry is essentially robbery. The snatching of that which rightfully belongs to God and the giving of it to another. And so in the Old Testament, what we see is that God is zealous and God is jealous for his glory. Basically, he's not going to share his worship. And so God is provoked when that worship is given to something besides himself. Paul, zealous and jealous for God's glory, zealous and jealous for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the presence of idolatry, was provoked. I can't help but wonder as we look at this particular passage and we think about the city of Athens and we think about idols, I can't help but wonder if we recognize just how surrounded by idols we are. You know, we humans have an amazing capacity, uh, an amazing ability to make an idol out of anything. Now, when we think of idols, we most likely think about some sort of carved statue. 
We most likely think of some kind of beautiful or grotesque depiction of a god or goddess before which some uncivilized, barely clothed pagan performs fawning and ancient acts of piety. I'm a child of the 1980s, and so quite often when I think of an idol and idolatry, I think of Mola Ram ripping out a heart, of a, a heart before a giant hideous Kali. That's an Indiana Jones and a Temple of Doom reference to those of you who are paying attention. The weakest, well, no, I would have said it was the weakest of the three, but then the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, and that thing was just an abomination. But when we think about idols and idolatry in that way, we're actually shortchanging the reality and the power and the commonality of idols. An idol is essentially anything under the sun that is made into an ultimate thing. An idol is anything under the sun that we use to find meaning, purpose, or fulfillment. An idol is that which we look upon and think to ourselves, if I possessed that thing, if that thing was a part of my life, then my life will have value and it will be worth living. That can and be and will be an idol. And these things that we often turn into idols are, quite frankly, good things. Timothy Keller, in fact, says, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. How can we tell an idol? How can we find an idol in ourselves or in our families or in our church or in our culture? Well, I think there's a couple of key questions that we can ask ourselves. There's some clues that we can use to identify our idols. Idolatry can be identified by the amount of time spent in the pursuit of something. Just as just an example. How many of us watched more than one football game yesterday? <laughs> Not that we're pursuing football as an idol, but there is some level in which we're pursuing entertainment or selfish use of time. I think I watched three, I'll be honest in my confession. Or how about this one? In a, a 2016 article from Network World, uh, author Patrick Nelson revealed the results of a study in which they tracked smartphone usage. Okay, So every time th those who were participating in the study, every time they tapped, typed, swiped, or clicked, that was counted as a touch. And on average, those who were tracked, those who were a part of the study, touched their phones. They tapped, typed, swiped, or clicked 2,617 times a day. That works out to a few million touches per year. That is a whole lot of time spent with poop emojis, people. That's just an example, right? So is there an idol somewhere in the smartphone, whether it's our entertainment or our pursuit or whether it's the thing itself? What consumes our time reveals idolatry. Idolatry can also be identified by the amount of our money we spend on a given thing. I'm not talking about paying bills or buying groceries. I'm talking about how we prioritize what we might call our disposable income, or if we go without, go without some of the basics in order to get something which may be unnecessary. For example, in a few weeks, the iPhone X or iPhone 10 will be released at the price of $999. You spend more money on an iPhone 10 than you would spend if you ordered the entire menu at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Yet, do we doubt that it will not sell out? 
do we doubt that there will be a line around the block? Idolatry can be identified by what we focus upon. So for example, how many songs can you name that have love in the title? I always think it's awesome when people talk about how wholesome and great the the lyrics to the oldies are. Here's a song from The Temptations. I'm going to build my whole world around you. You're all that matters. Just a smidgen of idolatry there. The songs, You're My Everything, if you want to check me on it. Or how about Sting's song, Sacred Love, You're My Religion, You're My Church, You're My Holy Grail at the End of My Search. Or consider the focus we put upon children, the focus we put upon money, the focus we put upon health, the focus we put upon entertainment, the focus we put upon toys, big and small, or any of the other countless things, oftentimes good things, that we allow to take the place of God. What consumes our focus? Our culture, folks, is just as full of idols as the culture of the Athenians. And we need to have the same word preached to us that the Athenians needed to have preached to them. Because we need our idols confronted and uprooted by the gospel of Jesus. When that happens, our world is turned upside down. The thing is that because of our sin and our sinful tendencies, what we call normal is actually what God calls upside down. And when our normal is turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus, then and only then are we found to be right side up with God. It's only ever by having our world turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can ever find ourselves right side up. We must be ruthless with the idols in our lives. They must be destroyed, torn down, uprooted, and replaced by Jesus. He must become the object of our worship and our service. He is the one who must rightfully consume our focus, our time, and yes, even our pocketbooks, so that even while we work our jobs, even while we love our families, even while we go about our days, Jesus is the center of it all, and all that we do is for his glory. It is to Jesus that we must turn to be fulfilled, satisfied, and saved. And so it is Jesus who must become the treasure's of our hearts so that we are right side up. When Paul was confronted or when when Paul found himself surrounded by idols, it's really, I think, amazing to see what he did. He was jealous for God's glory and most likely distressed because those who are worshiping idols are worshiping nothing. The Psalms, I think it's in Psalm 135, the author says, Idols are nothing but blind, deaf, and mute. They cannot speak, and those who worship them become like them. The compelling witness of the Old Testament about what idols are is that they are absolutely worthless, especially when you need them the most. And so here he is, Paul, surrounded by idols that are nothing, surrounded by people who are worshiping nothing, jealous for God's glory, and I think compassionately moved to speak truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ to the hearts and the minds of these Athenians who claimed, uh, who arrogantly claimed knowledge. So in the face of idols and those who worship them, he reasoned with them. He proclaimed Jesus to them. He started in the synagogue, which is his pattern. He moves on to every day. He is in the marketplace, that center of public life in Athens, where he talked about Jesus every day. 
And he even encountered philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, and he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All along the way, Paul was confronting the idols of Athens and those who worshipped them, not with his own words, not with his own eloquence, but with the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we finally see, in this, uh, as he goes to the Areopagus, we finally get an idea of what it is that Paul was saying to confront idols. What was he doing to talk to them about reality? What was he doing to turn their world upside down? Well, there on the Areopagus, Paul attempts to bring clarity to the superstitious minds of the Athenians that were clouded by the mists of idolatry. He's using a point of contact with their, their culture, the altar to the unknown God. You're so religious that you don't even want to miss the opportunity to worship something you don't know. Well, let me tell you about a God you really don't know. Let me reveal to you one you don't know who in reality exists. He is the creator of all that is. You see, Paul doesn't start by talking about Jesus. He starts by, to undermine their idols by going even deeper into reality. He goes back to creation itself. You want to know about an unknown God? Well, let me tell you about this God, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And by the way, he doesn't need you. He doesn't live in your temples. He doesn't need you to feed him sacrifices. He doesn't need you. In fact, you've got it upside down, twisted and warped. You need him, not he needing you. He goes into Athens. He goes to the Areopagus, to these men who spent their time talking and discussing, learning new ideas, and he gets to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is idolatry, idolatry which gets the relationship between creator and created upside down. It reverses the way it truly is. So Paul here is revealing the error in the thinking of their religious life. They've got it backwards. You need God far more than God needs you. And as, well, as he's doing this, as he's, he's peeling away these layers of the onions, he's, he's attempting to unstop the ears, to open the eyes, to say, there is a reality which you know nothing about. And by the way, there is a God who created, who made you to worship him, and you're groping around in your blindness and in your darkness. You cannot find him. And now you can't plead ignorance. That's what he says to him. Paul calls them to know God truly. He calls them to know the creator God. He calls them to know the God who put them in their place, who established their life, the one in whom they live and they move and they have their being. Be done with the way of idols and know God. Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge. God, the creator, God, the sustainer, God, the sovereign Lord of all creation has commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now he brings Jesus into the equation as he's established God the sovereign, God the creator, God the one who made the wood out of which you're creating a statue, God the one who made the gold that you are shaping and molding and melting to form an idol, God the creator will come to judge. How do we know? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. 
Now you need to repent. Repent of what? Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your ignorance. Repent of worshiping these things of creation. Turn to the one who has created. Worship him instead. But in the pages of Acts chapter 17, we can almost hear the gears of the minds of the Athenians grind to a halt because Paul preaches the reality of one true God. He preaches the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He preaches the reality of the coming judgment. And these are not things the Greeks really thought about, believed in, or considered. The gospel turns the world upside down. It just does. Because the gospel uproots that which we claim to be good, that which we worship. The gospel uproots our idolatry. It did it in the first century, and it does it today still. So when we look at Scripture, I always try to figure out, you know, what is it the Lord wants us to hear? What is it the Lord wants us to do? How should we be different for having looked at this passage from Acts chapter 17? One thing is simply this. Folks, we may be like the Athenians. We may need to have God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, uproot idols in our lives. It's okay if that's true. Because God is offering us a chance for forgiveness and for restoration. We never grow out of the gospel. We only grow in the gospel. And so if we need to be encountered with the truth of the sovereign creator God, the truth of God, the one who created us, not us creating him, if we need to hear again that it's in God that we live and we move and have our being, that he will judge the heavens and the earth, and that Jesus has raised from the dead, been raised from the dead, then you know what? We need to be gospeled again. And that's okay to recognize that because there is grace to respond with faith for forgiveness, for healing, for renewal, for restoration. And so we probably ought to be aware of the idols within us. How do we spend our time? What do we focus upon? How do we spend our money? But I wonder, too, if we shouldn't be a little bit like Paul and ask ourselves, ask ourselves the question, do we react to the idols around us the way Paul reacted to the idols around him? Are we provoked like Paul? Do we respond to the idols within us and within our world with distress and concern, not only for ourselves, but for those who are trapped in the worthless and empty worship of worthless and empty idols? We've talked all summer long as we've looked at the book of Acts. All summer long I've been mentioning and, 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 and restating and, and repeating the, the vision the Lord has led us to, to be a church that blesses, God, blesses people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building His kingdom. In order to be that kind of church, we must be a people who will confront idols within us and within the world around us. Being witnesses to the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God, is, it is something that every church is called to do and every believer is called to do. We can't get around that. But we must recognize that as we participate in God's unstoppable plan for the gospel to go forth to all the corners of the earth, that necessarily means that we will encounter and confront false idols with the reality of God and the truth of Jesus in us and in the world around us. Are we jealous for God's glory? Do we love those who do not yet know Jesus? And are we willing to proclaim to them truth that they too may be set free? 
We must realize that this confrontation will result, as it did with Paul, with three levels of reaction. Paul at the Areopagus, he mentioned the resurrection and some mocked him and walked away. Paul there in Athens, the gospel was proclaimed and some men did join and believe. And then there were others who responded with what I would call skeptical curiosity, prepared to hear more. Are we ready for that? Are we willing to be used by God in this particular way to turn the world upside down? I think it's G.K. Chesterton who once said, the world doesn't need a church that is changed by the world. The world needs a church that will change the world. Jesus calls his church to be a people who turn the world upside down. Like Paul in Athens, we are called to proclaim the gospel, to speak truth, to love people. We're called in the power of the Holy Spirit to turn the world upside down, to see it right side up before God. I said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.